All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 4. We go straight through the Bible books in this church. We, I don't just kind of randomly pick topics. We randomly pick books, but then we go through the book together, and we chose Matthew. We're going through Matthew. We're in chapter 4. We just so happen this Sunday to be on verses 8 through 18, 18 through 25. So we're going to read that together. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with the various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text that we are reading this morning. I thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired men to to write the true words of God. I thank you that we can have this book in our own language. Whatever that language is, chances are in this room, there are Bibles. There are Bibles in English. There are Bibles in Spanish in Italian, in German. You've given us the Bible in our own language so we can understand you and know who you are. So we thank you for that, and I pray this morning that we would be blessed by the reading and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this first few verses, verses 18 through 20, you might initially think that this is kind of odd. Some random guy walks up to two brothers who are fishing and just says, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they just drop it all, and they follow them. Seems a bit odd. Do they know who Jesus is at all? I mean, if you were at your workplace one day, and someone comes by and just says to you, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Would you drop everything and just follow him? No, probably not. That's why context is important. If you look at verse 18... Right above where we were reading, it said, I'm sorry, in verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So he was already preaching by this point. John the Baptist, like we taught a few weeks ago, had already been declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. So people were aware of this claim. Not to mention in verse 13 of this chapter, we saw Jesus left Nazareth, Nazareth and he moved to this place, Capernaum, where he now is, and this place is the home of Peter and his brother, otherwise known as Simon. They lived here. In Mark chapter 1, it tells us that um, Simon had a house there. His mother lived there, and Jesus heals his mother there. And so these two men lived where Jesus lived and began to preach so that they had likely heard him preach. Also, in the Gospel of John, there are recorded previous conversations 
that these men had with Jesus before they were his disciples. So they'd already interacted with him. You might remember, you know, um, one of them goes back and says, I found the Messiah, and he's come from Nazareth. And somebody says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they come, he's like, Philip, I saw you under the tree. He's like, oh, oh my goodness, this is crazy. So they all talked with Jesus beforehand. So it's not as random as it seems. This isn't the first time they've talked with Jesus. So they knew who he was, and kind of an honor. They hear him preaching. They may have seen some miracles. And he calls them and says, you guys, follow me. And so then they dropped everything, and they followed him. The next thing is similar, verses 21 and 22. There's two more brothers, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother. But the same thing, they're fishing. He calls them. They drop it all. They follow him. So it's a similar story. The interesting thing, though, is that three men are mentioned here that become pretty important in the early church, especially Peter, James, and John. I like to kind of call them the inner circle of Jesus. There are times when Jesus while he'll often separate from the crowds and teach just his 12 disciples, there's also sometimes when he pulls away from the 12 and has intimate moments with just Peter, James, and John, like the transfiguration when he appears in his glory for a moment and Moses and Elijah are with him. It's only Peter, James, and John who get to see that. And so there's these, these three men. Paul says they're known in the early church as pillars. They're also the ones that when Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed and he's sorrowful and he's praying and he leaves his disciples to go pray, he asks Peter, James, and John to go further with him. And so these three men become very important. And the first church council, the council in Jerusalem to talk about what are we going to do with those Gentiles that are getting saved? That first council, Peter's there, James is there, John's there. It's a very important event. And so these men are important, and we're going to read more about them as the gospel goes along. But then we get to verse 23. Oh, see? Pillars. Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel means good news. And in our last week, we spoke about the kingdom, and I asked you, what is the good news of the kingdom? We know the good news of like the gospel and Jesus died for our sins, but what is the good news of the kingdom? And I know that was a bit confusing last week. I'm not sure I ended up getting around to really defining the kingdom. I was honest with you guys that I was working through some stuff and I was sort of just dropping it on all of you. And I know it was kind of confusing, and I was thinking back about it later. I was kind of laughing, thinking about it. I'm not sure that any of that made sense last week, but I had a fun time, so I hope you got something out of it. Um, basically, what I wanted to point out is that our, our view of the kingdom affects how we live. If we think the kingdom of God is in the future and not yet, there's this tendency to think, well, does any of this matter on earth? 
But if we believe that Christ came with the kingdom now and that the kingdom is now, he is reigning now, we're part of his kingdom now, that gives us not only hope, but also kind of an optimistic sense of the future and what our role is in the world, ushering in God's kingdom, not just waiting for it all to burn later. So even if so, that view is called the, the post-millennialist view, which is a very rare, very odd view of end times, which I'll tell you what, I'm very sympathetic towards, even though I don't believe it. My concern is that those people who have that view end up living more like Christians. They're the ones who founded the universities and the hospitals and the, and the libraries. And it's because they believed we are building God's kingdom on earth now. And every good deed we do glorifies God and all of it matters. And I think that even if we don't believe that futuristic view, we ought to still live that way. Because even if it's all downhill from here until the end... That's a better example to the world living that way. But I may have not gotten around to defining what the kingdom is. So just briefly, in case I didn't get around to that, a kingdom refers to any territory that a king reigns over. Whatever a king has jurisdiction over is his kingdom. Okay? The kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Sam, could you bring my laptop on top of the thing? Because my clicker is skipping every, every couple, so this is like a weird signal problem. At the end of Matthew, speaking of kingdom and reigning, the Great Commission begins with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, that idea, and all nations, not just like a select few, not just a remnant, not like share the gospel once and walk away, but go and make disciples of all nations. Don't give up till they're all saved. That kind of optimistic view of like, get out there and save everybody. And he says, all authority has been given on heaven and on earth. So the kingdom of God is heaven and earth because Christ reigns over all of it. All authority has been given to him in heaven and in earth. That's the kingdom and we are part of it. It's begun, Jesus is king, and we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe, which means to obey, all that Jesus commanded. So what we see here in Matthew 4 is that Jesus not only says the kingdom's at hand, but begins to demonstrate it with miracles, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's, knowing, he's showing that all authority has been given to him. Over every disease, over death itself, he can raise the dead if he wants to. Even over natural occurrences, like when he quiets the storm, he has power over all of it. In Christ's kingdom, he has authority over all things, and we have access to that in Christ. So we can ask for whatever we need, trusting that Christ, who loves us, will give us what he knows we actually need, whether we think we need it or not, because he has authority over all of it. And that's the kingdom. So that completes the verse-by-verse portion of this Sunday. What I wanted to do now is a topical kind of thing about faith, belief, and following. So I noticed something in this passage. Jesus didn't call these disciples to believe. He didn't say, believe in me, and I'll make you fishers of men. 
Not that he couldn't have said that. He does later on call people to believe in him. But he says specifically, follow me. And it got me thinking, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to believe in him? Are there different kinds of belief? Are there different kinds of following? Is some belief good and some belief bad? Is there a wrong way to believe? Is there a wrong way to follow? And so I kind of wanted to, to look into some of that. Did you know that there are different kinds of belief and that there is a right way and a wrong way to believe? There's actually a wrong way to believe in all of this stuff. Did you know that? I like that I'm seeing confused faces. That means I'm doing something right. Let me clear this up for you. First of all, in English, we use the word believe for a whole lot of different things, right? We even use it for like uncertainty. Like, hey, is so-and-so going to come over tonight? I believe so. But that isn't the same thing as when we say to somebody else, hey, you can do it. I believe in you. Two different meanings, right? Now, what if when you said to somebody, I believe in you, what you meant was, I'm uncertain of you. <laughs> Whole different meaning, right? So we use this word in, in different ways, and in the Bible, it's the same thing. James 2 verse 19 tells us, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do demons believe rightly in God? Like, is their belief the kind of belief that we want? Well, what is their belief? So demons are fallen angels, right? And they do Satan's bidding. They're on Satan's side, and they seek to, to deceive us, to distract us from knowing God and following Him and believing in Him. And James says, but they believe too. They believe in God. You say you believe in God? So do the demons. What makes you any different is what James is saying. James is pointing out a flaw in, in some of the people he was writing to. They were basically saying, I believe this stuff, but their life wasn't changed. And so James is saying to them, if you say you believe, but you're just letting the homeless die in the streets, and you're not lifting your hand to help anybody, your life doesn't demonstrate at all that you believe these things, then your faith is worthless. If it hasn't changed your life, it doesn't matter what you say, because even the demons believe that. That's the wrong kind of belief. So that means belief is not just about facts. Okay? The way the demons believe is because they know facts. Okay? They were in heaven with God one time, so they know He's real. They saw Jesus and the miracles, so they know that happened. They saw Christ raised, so they know that happened, so they believe those things. So as Christians, believing doesn't just mean, yeah, those things happened. Yeah, I'm convinced, you know, archaeological evidence, the resurrection, yeah, that happened. I believe that's true. That isn't what real belief comes down to. Even the demons can say that much. There's also a different kind of false belief where you're actually doing good works in Christ's name, which means you think He's real, but it's still wrong. Look in Matthew 7, starting verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these people called Jesus Lord. They did works in his name. So that's some kind of belief. They know he's real or else why would they be doing that? But he says, I never knew you. And it started off in verse 21. He said, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So these people who were doing good works in Christ's name were not doing the will of the Father. Now, what is the will of the Father? This is going to seem circular. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He has commanded us. So the will of the Father is to believe. But there's a kind of belief, belief in just the facts, that is not what they're talking about here. So that's a bit about belief. We'll come back to it. But let's discuss following for a second. There's also a way to follow Jesus wrongly. The Pharisees, for example, didn't they follow Jesus everywhere? When he came into a town, weren't the Pharisees finding out where he was, going to meet him, watching what he was doing, listening to what he was saying? But what were they always trying to do? Trap him? No, you said something, Noah? Well, eventually, yes, definitely. Be, they wanted to kill him because why? They felt threatened, yeah. Because, so what they were trying to do was prove him wrong. At first, they were trying to see whose side he was on. They were trying to make him take sides between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and he wouldn't. And then they were trying to, like, get him, trap him with his words and what he was teaching and kind of get him in trouble, and they couldn't do that either. So then they wanted to kill him. But they were always following him. But that isn't the kind of following that Christ was inviting these disciples to, right? He wasn't like, Peter and Andrew and James and John, come follow me and trap me in my words. Right? So there's a wrong way to follow. Also the people. Do you remember the story of when Jesus fed 5,000 people? And then afterwards, the next morning, he goes across the sea, and the crowds couldn't find him. And so they go around looking for him everywhere. They find him like, where did you go? We were looking for you. And what does he say to them? He says in John chapter 6, I don't think I put a, a slide for this one. He says, you are seeking me because you were filled with the food I gave you yesterday. That's why you're following me. And then he says, don't work for food that perishes. Work for food that endures endures for eternal life. And they say, what is the work of God? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe. So again, it comes back to these people were following him for what they could get from him and not really believing. Okay, so now we have a sort of interesting thing going on here. You have, there's a wrong kind of belief, which could be summarized by saying, if you say you believe, but you're not actually following him, that isn't real belief. But then you could also say, if you're following him for wrong reasons, you're also not believing him. 
So how do these things connect to one another? You could say right belief results in following for the right reasons. So when Jesus calls us to follow Him, He's not saying just tag along and argue with me and try to trap me in my words or just because I'm going to give you good thanks sometimes. Follow me because you actually believe in what I'm saying. That's the invitation. Follow me because you actually believe these things. And then, okay, what does he mean by belief? By belief, he doesn't just mean believe they're true. He means believe it so much that the result is you drop everything and you follow him. There's a simpler way to say this. True belief results in action. If you want to know what you really believe, examine your life. Despite what you say or what you think you believe, to know what you really believe, examine your life. Do you find in your daily life that you're following God, that you're wanting to make Him happy, that you are learning about Him, that you're reading your Bible, that you're seeking out friendships with Christians so that you can be built up and closer to Christ? Do you find in your life that you're wanting to help other people without any kind of recompense for yourself? Examine your life. Think about the way God would want you to live and examine your life. And if you're not living the way God wants you to live, you got to ask yourself, do I really believe this? And it's not hard to fix that, by the way. You can just cry out to God and say, help me believe. It's pretty simple, but it's so important because especially in the South, too many Christians go through the whole life thinking they've got it when they're essentially no different than any of the Pharisees who went to church on Sunday and thought they were in because they said they believed these facts. They believed these things happened, but it didn't change their life. And you don't want to go through your whole life that way, get to the end, go to heaven and say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church every Sunday and sing songs every Sunday? Lord, Lord, did we not help the poor in your name and and help the homeless in your name and do all these things? Did I not serve in church all these years in your name? And you say, but you never believed in me. Your life was never actually changed. So we should ask ourselves these questions. And the last thing I want to say is that belief is not the same thing as 100% certainty. There are things that we might not be certain about, and I'm speaking to you kids as well, that there's a lot to learn in Christianity. There's a lot of Bible to read. It takes a long time, and some of it seems really strange sometimes. And it's hard to imagine, and it's hard to grasp. You don't have to have it all figured out. Belief is not the same thing as uncertainty. It's okay to have areas where you're like, that confuses me. That's okay. You don't need to figure it all out. There's this great story in Mark 9. There's a boy who's possessed by a demon. And so the father comes to Jesus with a son and he's telling the whole story. And, and the father says to, to Jesus in Matthew 9, 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Does that sound like a very faithful prayer to you? Jesus, if you can do anything, could you help us? If you're able, like if you actually can do anything, could you please just help us? And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And then the Father cries out, and He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals the boy. 
uh, Jesus didn't require this man to have exceptional faith to get this healing. You know what he wanted from this man? He wanted his honesty. He wanted the man's heart. Honesty is more important to God than pretending. And I said this before, God already knows where you're at, but too often we feel like we have to pretend before God. Like we can't actually complain to God. We've got to turn our complaint into some sort of like holy, like, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that my brother was mad at me this week, and I just asked you to heal his heart, Lord. What we're thinking is, God, I'm so angry at my brother, I want to kill him. I think sometimes you got to be more honest with God because he already knows what you're feeling, but until you can get honest with him, he's not going to begin to work through that with you. And so this man is not going to fake it and go, Oh, yeah, Jesus, I totally believe in you. I was just telling myself, yes, I totally, I was just telling, I tell everybody, I tell them all about you. I totally believe. He's like, No, look, I kind of believe, but I have a lot of unbelief and I need you to help me with that. So God doesn't need us to be completely lacking of all uncertainty. What he wants is our heart and our honesty. So another way to say this is, is believe in Jesus and he'll help you with your unbelief. Follow him and he'll help you with your unbelief. Follow Him for the right reasons because you believe in Him and believe in Him, not just the facts, but actually putting your trust, putting your hope, putting your faith in Him. And then the believing and the following will work together. And again, if you wonder whether you really do believe, examine your life and ask yourself, do I see signs in my life? Do I see signs that I'm actually trying to follow Him?